You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone. You might have picked up on the theme today that uh, things are looking a bit like a wedding. I'm, I'm not your groom. Um, I'm more like the minister, uh, perhaps your wedding host. The theme of marriage kind of runs through Scripture. The Old Testament passage for today comes from out of Isaiah, um, the end of the prophet Isaiah, and he uses this metaphor like, When God comes, when the wrongs are made right, when peace comes to the city, it'll be like God will be the groom and Israel will be the bride. That God loves Israel the way a groom loves the bride. That there's this care and there's this excitement and there's this expectation that the coming of God will be a celebration, that the coming of God will be happy and that things will be made right. And there's this kind of beautiful kind of metaphor there that is used. So Angela and I have been married for 31 years. That's that's a good little stretch, getting started. And I was thinking, as as I was thinking about today's service and the various texts, so I guess it'll be 32 years this this summer. I was was very young at the time, like five, and... uh, you know, we were riding down. I lived in Virginia. We were riding down with family and friends. Um, we got married over in Deland. And I looked over. There was a toddler kind of sitting next to me in the car. And I said, Christopher, uh, do you think one day you'll ever get married? And he said to me, I'm already married. Like, there's mom and dad and me. That's We're married, right? We're a family. There's something really beautiful about that. I mean, I really, I mean, at the time, I, I thought, oh, that's cute. But as I reflect on it, I think Christopher had some wisdom for us that, that marriage is about coming together and making a family, that it's not, it's not just the matter of kind of two individuals going off by themselves, but it's kind of the gathering of families together, right? It's, it's, you know, it's the bringing together of different groups and that's exactly the imagery we have here. So in the Gospel of John, the very first sign that Jesus did was turning water to wine, and that was at a wedding. That's pretty interesting. So um, it says that Jesus and his disciples were at the wedding and that they had ran short on wine, and Jesus' mother comes and says, hey, they're, they're out of wine. And, and, and he says, well, what, is, what does that have to do with us? So it, it, kind of, it kind of suggests, perhaps, maybe, that um, they were just guests at the wedding, that they, they weren't in charge. Uh, Barbara Thyring, she's a theologian from Australia, she read that text and she thought, well, this must have been Jesus' wedding. Because <laughs> her argument went something like this. She's like, when was the last time you were at a wedding with your friends and your mother? <laughs> I'm like, mm, seems like maybe I've, I've been at a wedding. My mom was there too, and it wasn't mine. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the strongest argument I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, is, it is what, her, her work is what spawned Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. I don't know if you, if you read that book or saw that film. 
It's a little guilty pleasure of mine. I've actually read every single one of Dan Brown's books. I love them. Um, they're not necessarily very historical, but I find them very uh, delightful. Uh, it's kind of a nice getaway. Again, it's not a theological endorsement. Uh, maybe it's just a, you know my own guilty pleasure. You guys forgive me. But I'm a, I am a Dan Brown fan. Um, but kind of setting that possibility aside, we do have Jesus at this wedding, and they are short on wine. And so he instructs, you know, he says to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with us? And it's interesting, she doesn't respond to him. She doesn't, she doesn't say, she doesn't kind of offer some kind of argument. She doesn't uh, explain to him why she thinks that they should be involved. She just kind of turns to others and says, whatever he tells you to do, you know, my son, whatever he tells you to do, do it. <laughs> all right. It's interesting, another kind of interesting side note. If all we had was the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know her name, Mary. Like, the Gospel of John never calls her by name. It mentions her twice, and both times she is referred to as the mother of Jesus. Like, that's definitely like the house I grew up in, right? I would only call my mom, mom. Like, I would never call her by name. To call my mom by name would have been, I mean, on the verge of sacrilege. You know, I mean, it would be, I don't know, risky, right? I might not have made it this far had I done that. And so she turns to the others, kind of disregarding what he said. She turns to the others and she says, I want you to do what he tells you to do. So in a way, she's one of the first teachers Not just that she had taught Christ as a child, obviously she had done that, but she's one of the first to teach others to do what Jesus said. The next time that we see her, um, she's at the foot of the cross, and Jesus is looking down, and he's saying to his mother, Mother, behold your son, and he's referencing the beloved disciple, and then he says to the beloved disciple, behold your mother, right? He's kind of entrusting his mom to uh, the beloved disciple, and she does that. She obeys. She goes with the disciple. So not only is she the first to tell others to obey Jesus, the, one, the only other time that we see her, she's doing what Jesus told, said to do, right? She's, she's both, again, kind of the first teacher and one of the very first disciples, even though she herself had been his teacher. It's a beautiful relationship that I think we see there. The water, though, this is interesting. This is a little side note, or it might seem like a side note, but I think it's important. The, the water that was turned into wine, we are told, came from six stone jars. Now, stone, that's a very important detail in a Jewish wedding. Stone jars would have contained water that had been used for the ritual cleansing. Uh, pottery, um, could transmit spiritual uncleanness. So you know, or at least you know a little bit about kind of the ritual laws of dietary purity, or you've had friends, Jewish friends, that kind of eat kosher or kind of keep the kosher rules, like what you eat, what you don't eat, who you eat with, how you prepare things, you have to cleanse things. Like if you, if you ever go to Israel, um, and hopefully you all will at one point in your lives, um, you'll have your milk and cheeses and things for... Um, breakfast, but then at your dinner meal, uh, you won't have any milk or cheese, like that you don't mix milk and meat together. There's a line out of Leviticus that says, 
don't cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. And I guess that led to the practice of never having meat and milk in the same meal, so much so that they won't have, a lot of them won't have milk or meat even in the same kitchen. Like they'll maintain two kitchens, one to cook things that have uh, milk and cheese and such, and one to cook things that don't, right? Very intentionally kind of keeping those things uh, separate. So, uh, mm-hmm. that was my watch. <laughs> she said, I'm not sure I understand. And you all are like, yeah, what's, what's he talking about? <laughs> She's like just voicing your concerns. So, so um, the idea behind these kind of stone jars were like, unlike pottery jars, let's say somebody was for some reason, they were spiritually unclean. They had attended a funeral or had to bury a body or they had um, in the process of, of, of catching some meat or preparing some meat. She had, they had touched blood. So spiritually, they'd be unclean. They would be unfit to either eat with or you wouldn't want them kind of preparing your food, right? So to touch, to drink out of a, a pot or a cup that was made out of pottery and to drink after someone or someone to even wash their hands in water that was contained in pot, a, you know, a piece of pottery, and you washed your hands in that same water, if they were spiritually unclean, then you were spiritually unclean. Like, spiritual uncleanness apparently was very contagious, like worse than COVID, <laughs> right? It's like the, the Omicron variant, o- Omicron, excuse me, not Omicron, Omicron variant, right? Super, super, super contagious, the spiritual uncleanness. And so they would use these stone jars because according to the tradition, stone could not transmit this, right? So if water was kept in stone jars, the water was clean, so you'd clean your utensils in there, and then that's what you would cook with. So if Jesus is saying, hey, see those six stone jars? Fill those up with water to the very top. And then he says, now take some of that and give it to the steward of the wedding. And the steward tastes it, and he's like, man, this is the good stuff. He calls, he calls over the, the groom, and he says, man, you're really, you're really kind of a top-shelf kind of guy here, buddy. Like, typically, people serve their best stuff when, when people are sober, and then maybe on day two of the wedding, because their weddings would often last multiple days, right, after everybody had a few, then, they, you know, they kind of bring out the cheap stuff. But you're kind of the opposite. You're like the other way around. You've brought out the good stuff now, kind of late in the game. So, well, I'm going to come back around to that idea um, when we come to celebrate communion later. But for now, I want us just to think about this. If the water that they would typically be using to cleanse their uh, utensils with, to prepare their food or to clean up afterwards, right? If the water that they would typically be using to do that has now been turned into wine, how are they going to clean their stuff? Right? You're not going to clean your stuff with wine. That's, that doesn't seem, that's not a good way to do it. Right? So what's, part of what's being suggested here is that there's a, there's a, a rule change. Like, this is a plot twist. Something's going on here. Like, what we had been doing in the past, kind of cleansing our external selves is being shifted. Now we're going to kind of take something into ourselves, right? 
we're going to kind of drink this new wine as opposed to just wash with this kind of clean water. Now, this story precedes uh, the next, which is um, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, and he kind of talks about being born of water and spirit. And last week, when we talked about Jesus' baptism, we, we talked about how throughout Scripture, water is often this symbol of chaos and darkness and and kind of being unsure, not knowing what's happening. And, and certainly there's a lot of danger. There's a lot of ominous feel about the water. And nothing, no one kind of plays this water imagery out more than the Gospel of John, right? So we get this water that's turned to wine. We get he's, Nicodemus has said, you must be born of water and spirit. The, the woman at the well is told that Jesus has living water not just like the water that she gives. Um, in the next chapter, there's a paralyzed man, and he can't get down in the water fast enough. Jesus will say to the multitudes that when the Spirit, when you are filled with the Spirit, it will flow out of you like rivers of living water. Jesus will wash his disciples' feet in water. When his side is pierced, out will come water and blood. So all of these kind of images of water that forgive the pun, are kind of flowing through the gospel, right? Start here with this turning the water into wine. Like all of that imagery that generally, I mean, it could be used as kind of a cleansing, but mostly in scripture, right, it's used to represent kind of the darkness and the chaos. And now that is being transformed into something other, something new the new wine of Christ. So, again, we're going to come back to that in just a minute um, when we come to the table. But the table today, you might see here, is also decorated a little differently. So these are wedding gifts. The epistle passage for today and the passage that we read to you earlier, thank you, Alan, um, is from uh, Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, and he's talking about spiritual gifts. Now, it opens up, and I'm sure you could have easily missed this. He goes, he's speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, Now, a lot of you were pagans before you kind of came to our gathering. And the question is, what, what does he mean by that? A lot of you were pagans. Like, he, is he saying, like, a lot of them used to do, what, child sacrifice or something? I mean, what, what's, what's these pagans he speaks of? And what's the other option? Like, if you weren't pagans, who, who else in the group? Like, a lot of you were pagans. Imagine how I started my sermon this morning like this. A lot of you were pagans before you came to Oasis. And some of you are like, yeah, man, I've got a pretty spotty background. But, but, what, but what about the rest of you? You know, what, what are the ones who weren't pagans? So the word that's being translated there, pagans, is, the, is a word that we typically translate as Gentiles, right? Ethnoi. It's where we get the term ethnic. And maybe we should have done that here, too. He's like, a lot of you, when you, know, when you were Gentiles, you operated a certain way, but now, right, you're filled with the Spirit. You're going to operate differently. It's an interesting thing to think about, not just thinking about it spiritually, moving from kind of paganism to Christian spirituality, but the way in which down to the very heart of who we are, down to our actual bodies, that, that Paul is kind of saying, like, let me, let me 
rephrase it just a bit, given a, a, a contemporary dynamic so that we might feel what the Corinthians felt at the time. So Paul's from an ethnic minority, and now he's in a group where they are, they are diverse, but they're most, mostly, you know, uh, Greek and Roman, and Paul, and maybe a few in the group are probably still Jewish. And, and so let's imagine that Paul was African-American, and most of the people in the room uh, weren't. And he says, look, but when you were white people, you guys did a lot of crazy stuff. But now you're Christian. He's, he's having them not identify with their ethnicity, their culture, their, their birth. He's having them identify with their new group, right? Their new family. There's been a wedding. And the wedding is between God and humanity. And this wedding between God and humanity has required us to become part of a group that challenges all of the other demarkers or demarcations that we would have had in our lives. Everything else that might have separated us from others is somewhat under erasure because now we're a part of this group that's identified in Christ, in the Spirit. And the Spirit is now giving gifts to this new group. So I want you to think of the, of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, at least think of them today, as wedding gifts, right? There, there's a new marriage between divine and humanity, and, and God's not going to let us get started without giving some, some things to get us going. So who's to say? Like, there's a good chance this is a mixer, because, or maybe a blender, right? Because everybody needs one of those. And um, I don't know, this is a little larger. Maybe this is an air fryer. Those are real hot these days, you know? Everybody like an air fryer? If you don't have one, you should try and get one. They're really cool, right? So we need these things to kind of get us going. Like that's what, you know, people traditionally get at kind of a wedding shower or at a, at a wedding. They get some dishes. They get some pots and pans. They get some sheets and some towels. They get some kitchen utensils. Um, wedding gifts are not for the groom, or wedding gifts are not for the bride. Wedding gifts are for the couple. They're for this new family, right? That's, that's how they operate. And so with the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are not for you, that is, any of you, singularly, Right? Like, another way to think of that, we can, we can say it like this. The gifts of the Spirit are not for me. Like, say that. The gifts of the Spirit are not for me. Yeah, let's we'll try it again. Make sure we all got it. I'm going to say it, and then you'll repeat it. The gifts of the Spirit are not for me. That's right. The gifts of the Spirit are not for you. The gifts of the Spirit, if I could use my Southern colloquialism, are for y'all, right? It's not for you, it's for you all, right? It's for the body of Christ of which we are all members. So we can say this, the gifts of the Spirit are for us. Say that, the gifts of the Spirit are for us. Excellent, yeah. So they're not for me, but they are for us. 
And the way they work in the community is that not all of us have the same gifts. Some of you perhaps would love to preach, and you should let me know. We'll try to give you an opportunity. Others of you, the idea of standing up here and speaking for 30 minutes is like, would be torturous. Like, no. If they're going to require me to do that, I just won't come anymore. But we have, we have different gifts. We have different abilities. Uh, we are good at different things. Not just naturally good at it, but I believe the Lord has gifted us at it, right? Not all of us are musicians. Not all of us can sing. Not all of us um, can cook. Not all of us can, um, are, you know, some people are kind of extraordinarily introverted and the idea of standing at the door and kind of welcoming everyone, again, seems more like torture than it seems like a gift. Like, put me in the kitchen. I'll, I'll cook. Don't put me at the door. You require me to be at the door. Again, I'm not coming anymore. Right? Because... It's the way things work. And God is not just leaving things to us in terms of our natural abilities. He's actually gifting us things with spiritual things, with knowledge, with wisdom, with prophecy, with tongues, with interpretation of tongues. Like these gifts are for the body. And we should never imagine that we just simply possess them as individuals. But rather they are for us. They were given to us so that we might have a good start into this new marriage that we have. And it's not just the marriage that our natural marriages, right, like between Angela and me, but it is our marriage, like Christopher said, right? I'm already married. Mom and Dad and me, we're married. It's already here. We are married. It's a metaphor, (laughs) right? that God is our, that that Christ is our groom and that we are his bride. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.